Being saved by grace through faith and not our own works, do we still have to obey God's word? James says faith without works is dead. Are we good? Are we done? Call it. We have a, well, actually, apparently, our child gave you a little bit of an example of this this morning, bursting in on the scene. Uh, you know, Jamie and I try to train Joss up in the way she should go, and sometimes that's a bit of a battle. We check how things are going and make adjustments and so on. Um, she's, our, she's our kid, and she's always going to be our kid. But we still care how she acts. We care whether or not she obeys, and it's the same with God. It's not any different. If I, if I didn't try to make Joss uh, obey, if I just let her do whatever she wanted, you would rightly say that I'm a bad father. This message, this message comes in a good, in a good uh, progression, I would say, of the, the ones that preceded it. Um, Dan spoke on justification and sanctification. Okay, justification is being made right with God. That's God's work. That's not ours. Sanctification is the process of being made holy, and that is something that we partner with God in. And then last week, Mike talked about how uh, our works do not save us, that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And so Mike's message falls on the justification side of the knife, and this one falls on the sanctification side of the knife. And it really is kind of like a, like a razor's edge. You know, it's a, there's, a, there's a fine line to walk when we're talking about working out our salvation versus working for our salvation. There's a big difference, but it sounds so similar. So, we're saved by grace through faith, not of our own works, right? We have nothing to boast about. That's Ephesians 2. Do we still have to obey? The answer is an easy, obvious yes. It's a preponderance of Scripture that... Uh, supports the fact that we need to obey. So what we're going to do, we're going to look at two passages. I'm going to teach through them. Uh, I believe the Bible, the Bible talks about a matter being established on the basis of two or three witnesses. I believe that that's a good uh, principle to apply to Scripture. If you find something in the Bible only once and you can't back it up with any other Scripture, you probably shouldn't hold on too tightly to it. So we're going to look at two passages. And I'm going to teach through them, and then we're going to move on and talk about uh, some application. So first we're going to go through Romans, starting in chapter 5, verse 18. Yes, I'm uh, reading from the ESV. Therefore, see, they tell you you're not supposed to start with a therefore. They say if there's a therefore, you should go back and find out what what it's there for, right? For the sake of time, I'm just going to tell you uh, what's been happening up to this point. Because here's an amusing little exercise. If you go back from verse 18 and look at how the verses start, you have therefore, for, and, but, yet, for, and therefore. There's really no good place to, to jump off there, right? I mean, I, it can start in chapter 1, verse 1 if you want, but let's not. So, therefore, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. One trespass led to condemnation for all. But we are not judged 
based on Adam's sin, but based on our own. Now, there are people, uh, maybe somebody in this room here, they kind of wear their wounds like a badge of honor. They hold on to these, these hurts, and they, they um, say, oh, I'm independent. I don't need anybody else, something like that. My dad abused me, and I, now I have a short temper, and I'm myself abusive to other people, something like that. I got picked on at school. I don't trust anybody. Uh, I'm such and such nationality, and that's how we are. Your sin is your sin. It's not your parents, it's not your ancestors, and it's not Adam's. We have nobody to blame. And I don't want to sound unsympathetic to somebody who had a bad childhood. Uh, I really do sympathize. We live in a fallen world, and I believe that our development plays a role in how we turn out. But, and this is a big but, in verse 18, we saw there, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So we're not judged on Adam's sin, but on our own. But we aren't saved on our own obedience. We're saved on Christ's obedience. Hebrews 10, chapter 7, this is quoting Psalm 40. It says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And in Philippians chapter 2, I think Mike read this last week, uh, but he, it says, He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christ's obedience is greater than Adam's sin. It's greater than our sin. It's greater than all sin. Moving on, verse, uh, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that... As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law came in to increase the trespass. The thought behind the Greek here is that it came in beside the sin, that it joined forces with it to increase its power. God's plan for redemption was always that his grace given by Christ's shed blood for us would be the triumph over sin. But for a time, the Mosaic law was established not to interfere with the grace, but to prepare for it by shining the light on unknown sin and making it known. Thus convincing people of their need for a redeemer. You can read uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 26 for more on this. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, Paul expects a kind of retort here, and he deals with it. Someone might have said, oh, God's grace is awesome. If we live sinful lives, we can receive more grace. That's continuing in sin. It's a present active tense which means that Paul is talking about unrepentant, habitual sin. So there's a difference between being apologetic about your sin, about being sorry or shame-filled or embarrassed, and being repentant, turning from your sin, agreeing with God on what sin is. Verse 3, do you not know 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Are you walking in newness of life? If you are truly repentant, you are walking in newness of life. Does this mean we are perfect? Of course not. John says in his first epistle that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin is a fact in the life of a believer, but it should become more and more occasional. Okay, now we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 5, and I'll start in verse 5. Now, in this part of Hebrews, uh, the, the author is writing about the supremacy of Christ over angels, over Moses, over the priests of Israel, the Levites. And this is where we pick up. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus did not take the mantle of high priest for himself. Neither did he take for himself the position of firstborn among many brethren. These things were declared over him in Psalm 110.4 and 2.7 respectively. The Father gave him these positions. In the Great Commission, Jesus didn't say, I have all authority in heaven on earth, but I have been given all authority. Jesus was not a priest in the way Aaron was a priest, but in the way Melchizedek was a priest, without beginning and without end. You can read Hebrews chapter 7 for more on that if you like. See, Aaron had to atone for himself first, and then for the sins of the people, until the next time that he had to do it. But Jesus, who was condemned to die, he was vindicated by the resurrection. He made atonement at once for all sin, for all time. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This is an interesting passage. The uh, agony that's written about here brings to mind the scene in Gethsemane. So let us not think that, oh, Jesus was perfect, sure, but he was God. He had it easy. It was easy for him to obey. It's not true. He sweat drops of blood over it. He agonized over it. This is important because obedience doesn't come easy for us. But it didn't come easy for Jesus either. And look here, this part that says, able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. I'm like, how was it heard? He asked for the cup to be taken away, and it wasn't. But his prayer was not about escaping God's will, but accepting it. He knew what he was here to do. How many times did he talk about his hour not yet having come? It says here that Jesus learned obedience. That's not in the way that we learn obedience, by changing from disobedience. Jesus was never disobedient. He learned it by experiencing it, by enduring suffering, 
See, God in heaven does not know the experience of obedience because he reigns supreme. He has nobody to obey. So he learned obedience through suffering. And if suffering was used to teach Jesus, should we be surprised or angry when God uses it to teach us as well? Moving on in verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He, was, he became the source of eternal salvation, back in verse 9, to all who obey him. Now, is that saying that our obedience plays a part in our salvation? Is this either legalism or works-based salvation in disguise? No, the author assumes that believers will obey. Verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The author doesn't say that you are dull of hearing. He says that you have become his, his readers. So something changed. It's not hearing loss he's talking about. It's not an ear problem. It's a heart problem. It's not being interested in what God has to say. See, we can listen, right? But are we really hearing? Are we taking the truth of God's word and actively applying it to our lives? That's biblical hearing. I'm going to read a couple of verses from Proverbs 4. Uh, 1, 2, and 20. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. And verse 20 says, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. See, if you aren't hearing the word of God like that, you have become dull of hearing. Proverbs 28.9 says, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. These things go hand in hand. Faith toward God, repentance from dead works. Paul opens and closes the book of Romans by talking about the obedience of faith. So, we have to deal with the elephant in the room. We have to deal with the sin in our lives. Pretending it doesn't exist is self-deception. I've tried that. I've tried hiding it and hoping that nobody finds out that I'm a fraud. I've tried presenting a version of myself that people might like. 
I'm done with that nonsense. I am a sinner. And when I am honest with God, and you find people, and myself, about that fact, I allow God to redeem that part of me. So whatever you're dealing with, addictions, anger, anxiety, fear, lust, gossip, grudges, whatever, hear me on this. God's grace is greater than all of it. Put together, and he wants to redeem it. So what do we do? I don't want this to be some pie-in-the-sky idea just out in the ether. I want to give you actionable information. First thing is we need to understand that we don't need to be set free from our sin. If you have placed your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have already been set free. Those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. Peter said that God's power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He has already given us the tools. We need to use them. We, like wise men, seek to build our house on the rock that is Jesus. But are we building with the tools he has given us, or are we trying in vain to pound nails with our fists? So let's talk about the tools. Okay, the first one is the Bible. Stephanie shared a post recently that talked about an overdose of Scripture. I like that wording. It stuck with me. If you want help in your struggle with sin, get more of God's Word in your life. It is living and active and transforms us when we read and study and meditate on it. If there's things in the Bible you don't understand, don't let that put you off. Welcome to the club. Ask questions. Don't be ashamed to do it. Okay, the second tool is prayer. God promises to offer us help and a way out when we are tempted. That is a prayer that he can't wait to answer. Something that's really helped me is praying ahead of time to be reminded of that in the time of temptation. Because oftentimes, if I was in a carnal place, I wasn't really thinking about wanting a way out. But praying for ahead of time to know that I could have one has helped. And finally, each other. We're not meant to do this alone, but to share each other's burdens. We do this by praying for each other, by holding each other accountable. If you don't have somebody you share your struggles with, find somebody. One or two people of the same gender. If you have issues with trust, put yourself out there a little bit at first, and then a little more and more. This place is full of people you can trust. I've made a lot of great relationships here. I'm confident you will find somebody to help. In closing, what are we talking about? We're talking about practice. If you want to get good at something, you practice it. The Bible contrasts practicing sin and practicing righteousness. In the book of Hebrews, the author talks about the 12 spies, 10 of whom didn't believe that the Israelites could take the promised land. It was called the promised land. God keeps his promises always. They saw the giants in the land, right? 
And that's what sin is in our lives. It's the giants in the land. See, we don't have to defeat these giants on our own. Their problem, and it was called a certain type of disobedience in Hebrews, is that they didn't trust God to deliver them. And God wants to deliver us from these sins. We have everything we need to eradicate it. No, we're not going to be perfect. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a lifelong struggle. But I encourage you to take that struggle up. 